Welcome to Ambry. Think new and change your world. We're here with Mike Murray, and we are in the beautiful downtown offices of Long Beach at the Long Beach Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we got access to the president's office, so we're trying. I'm trying not to wreck anything here. Mike, thanks for joining us. My I pleasure. appreciate it. I'm going to redo your intro just so it's on one video. Yeah. Um, so, when I was thinking about Anbury and the podcast and what I wanted Anbury to be, I wanted it to be a place of learning. I wanted it to be a place of inspiration. Our tagline is to think new and to change our world. And I hold you in such high regard. And I know that that makes you uncomfortable, and that's perfectly okay with me. I'm fine making you uncomfortable, but I do. I hold you in high regard. I've known you for five years and about eight years. Eight years I've known you. And in those eight years, um, through just being able to, to know you on a personal level as a friend and to serve with you on board of directors and continue to help vets, you've made me grow in so many ways by thinking differently. So I appreciate that for you and from you. And I'm so happy that you agreed to be my first guest. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So if you have been keeping up with our event page, um, you've got kind of the, um, the background on, on Mike Murray. Um, I've only scratched the surface of your accomplishments on the event page and the links that I've provided. Um, not only were you a Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, but um, also a Bronze Star Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, Purple Heart, Dewey Smith Award for Community Service. Now you're hating this moment right now. President's Distinguished Community Service Award, Corporate Leader of the Year, a Voice for Long Beach Children Award, and the very first recipient of the Long Beach Chamber of Commerce's Community Spirit Award. That's quite a list. I want to start off with just your career. So given that list that I just, I just read off, given the accomplishments you've had, which of them was the greatest and why? Well, um, those are all plaques that I very much appreciate. Um, but um, here's how it goes for me. Um, what's influenced me most was the Marine Corps, as you know. I went into the Marine Corps very ill-equipped. Uh, physically, I was okay because I played football, I ran track, I worked out. Physically, I was, I was good. But um, no tool works in my hands that the Marine Corps could uh, somehow educate me to take apart a weapon and put it back together again. I couldn't build a model to save my life as a kid. I mean, they should have an IPO. I mean, they're so good at educators to be able to do that with me. Now, I'm back to normal where, you know, nothing, <laughs> you know, schematics don't work for me, nothing. But they did that for me, and I made it through, and they gave me um, so much. So the Marine Corps is one. The next is the people that I got to meet uh, in, in, so as my career went along um, was astonishing to me um, from all levels, um, you know, from Hall of Fame athletes, um, worked with James Earl Jones and people like that on projects, uh, and people like you and the veterans that I've met, um, invaluable to me. And then the, the third part of the, that I really like is that I was able to stay, work with youth throughout. And I wasn't on a career path that 
youth were normally part of it for the most part, but by the luck of the draw, I've been able to continue to work and influence and be, be around youth in, in, in a variety of ways. So that's been the driver and what I most appreciate about where I'm at now. So your accomplishments are more about people, the impact of, of people. Yeah, and yes, right, the reciprocal impact of, of people that I'm involved in. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a personal, coming from something internally personal to you. And that leads into to my next question. What's the correlation between who you are personally, and, and from an abstract kind of, kind of point of view, who we are personally, what's that correlation of that into who we are professionally? Well, for me, that's a relatively easy question um, in that, and it came to me um, when I was in Vietnam, I was in a, a program called Combined Action where 10 or 12 Marines would live in a village. We'd live in their homes, three or four of us. You can imagine this, three Marines to come into your house tonight and going, wow. we'll be here for a while. We're going to check this area out. Um, that's essentially what we did. But I realized um, that I was the PR guy for the unit. I had uh, gone, I had studied Vietnamese in Da Nang for two weeks, you know, one of the hardest but most beautiful languages, so you, I had two weeks of it, you can imagine how, how fluent I was in it. But I would act as the go-between between the Marines and the Vietnamese. And I'm comfortable, and I've always been comfortable in that position, in that role, in the middle. Uh, and I can go back to my family and try to keep things settled and things like that, I found myself in the middle. And um, that's kind of what PR is. You're, you're between an organization and clients or, you're, you're, or whatever it might be. And your role is to stay calm, try to find some even ground, extend things a little bit for understanding, and bring people together. So that is how my career uh, has been built in that being comfortable in sort of negotiating with two different entities. You, you did that in your personal life even before yes. you were of age to do it. Absolutely. Why are you so being comfortable in the middle, being PR, mm -hmm. as you you described, um, being in combined action, which is a very interesting story. So you would actually live in villages with the Vietnamese to do. Um, well, we were working with the uh, village soldiers, um, um, and the, one of the most interesting parts, we didn't have any officers with us because the village soldiers didn't trust officers. So you've got 10 or 12 Marines, highest rank would be E4, E5 sometimes. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was an interesting group. And so we did ambushes, we ran patrols, we did civic action. Uh, if we had a medic, uh, we did a sick bay. Um, and we'd all do different, different things, different things like that. So it was, in a sense, it comes under that chapter heading of uh, winning hearts and minds. But if you let them, they won your heart. The Vietnamese people won your heart, and that's definitely what happened to me. And so we were, we were active every day, uh, and with the Vietnamese, 24-7. Well, and I was reading, you know, and preparing for this, and knowing you, I still had to do research on you. You never talk about yourself, ever. Mm -hmm. There's very, very few times do you share, do you share stories. Um, but I feel like when I hear your, when you finally do share a story, I'm learning the, the, the whys of, of why you are and how you treat individuals. And so I was doing research and um, I was looking at when you were in combined action and when you were living in the villages that 
you would befriend, but it was mostly um, youth. And in the very first question, you had rep about accomplishments. You referenced youth. Um, why? Why is youth kind of a? Why is that so important? Like that's who you bonded with. That's who you. In your Signal Hill uh, Tribune article, you said that they had taught you um, what unconditional love was, and you spoke so passionately in the first question about that being one of your accomplishments, the youth empowerment. You want awards of youth empowerment. What What is it about the youth that, that kind of drives you? Um, it will have to go back to my youth, which was uh, 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 challenging. Uh, and uh, I wanted, I guess, I wanted kids to have fun and a productive youth and uh, learning. You know, we all had house boys or house uh, girls who basically worked for us. Uh, and so I associated myself with them a lot. I had a football sent over and we'd play football. I taught the kids football in a dry rice paddy. Mm -hmm. um, so we played we play games. I spent a lot of time with them. Um, and as, as I went on, um, it continued like that. Actually, um, it just came to me when I was thinking about it on the way here that um, a family asked me to be a godfather of their son uh, in the village, which was a, a, a great honor for me. And, you know, it, it's loose, you know, because, you know, it's, it's ten of us uh, yeah. in, in relatively minor ranks. So before we'd go out on an ambush, we're right off Highway 1, um, the Vietnamese would play um, volleyball, and I would jump into a volleyball game. And I knew enough Vietnamese to where I could congratulate someone on a good set. And they lost it over that. They just thought that was great. That, you know, that was the, the driver for me. Um, and you're right. It's not easy to get me to talk. No. And I don't know why it is. And it feels a little bit silly, but it's a, hard to get. You know, when we talked about who we are um, in correlation of, of who we are personally and, and our success professionally, and it sounds like there is a driving force. You've never lost yourself. You've never come, you've never, um, you may have lost yourself in different ways, I'm not sure, but you never pretended to be something that you're not to advance your career. Is that is that true? Um, Would you feel like that's an accurate Yeah, a career advancement was never a driver for me. Um, you know. And how in the world did you advance? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, I never had an idea that, okay, I'm going to be such and such. Mm -hmm. Never, never. I mean, in, in classes where they were career classes, I was in, I was, was, I was hurting because I didn't have any idea. But there were incremental uh, designs and plans that I put into place along the way um, to, to try to, you know, succeed. But it was never, I, I never was driven to... That wasn't my driver with any anything Marine Corps or anything else. I wasn't. It was. It was sort of what I what I could do for for folks has kind of been what drives me. How did you define success then when you first started yeah. your career? When yeah. you when you were going to go out there, how did you yeah. de define that? Yeah, um, it was movement. I, I define it as as movement. So I've had uh, a number of jobs. I was a, uh, I had two stints as a janitor. Uh, a friend of mine who played for the uh, Dallas Cowboys started a, um, a work uh, weight room in Culver mm -hmm. City for the Recreation Department. I ran that for four or five years when I was going to um, Cal State Fullerton, uh, getting a degree in Asian Studies. 
and um, they had kids down there, and they had adults down there. We had bodybuilders come down. There. It was a wide range, and it was free. And I got the biggest kick when I could tell a kid uh, when they came down for the first time. I said, you know, I'll have you bench pressing your body weight in two weeks. You know, and the thing was, he could bench press his body weight that day. But I wanted to get, you know, I wanted the incremental uh, strengthening that he was going to receive. And you would see a kid, his confidence would grow when he got stronger. Uh, I worked at a um, Jacqueline Health Spa in San Francisco. Uh, also in San Francisco, I worked for the recreational department there, which was one of my favorite jobs. I called in every morning, and the director would send me to a park in San Francisco. Yeah, all, you know, so there's all, they're always different. So I go to a park, break out the caroms, we get it on. Uh, but I am I was always completely comfortable going to a park and getting something squared away. You know, get a game going. You know, I, I could always do that. And then my jobs, luckily for me, uh, have involved kids and have involved working out and things like that. So that to me was movement. I wasn't thinking this is leading me. I was going to school. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking this is leading me to something. Um, I'm just digging it now. You know, and I'll you know as it comes, I'll react to it. Okay, I want to find out. I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to how you can if anyone can, can do you that. can. <laughs> I don't know how you can do that. So the next question, I, I'm not sure how how you would answer because you 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 didn't really design a career if you didn't if you're if you're living in the moment and your your definition of success is is movement. Mm-hmm. How did you go from janitor and working in weight room? to Director of Government Affairs at Verizon. So, as again, um, incrementally, the times would come on when I had to assess the situation, right? Right. As military, we're, you know, we're assessing things. Uh, and I had to figure something out. I think I can do this chronologically. In uh, high school, uh, when I was a junior, um, I played JV quarterback, and then uh, next year I was going to try to move up to the varsity. I wasn't scheduled to. The guy who was supposed to start, big guy, gun of an arm, good-looking kid, you know, he was the one. But the coach guy, the guy's name was Chuck Ramsey. And he, like I did in San Francisco, got a job in the summer where he was a playground director, substitute for playgrounds around Culver City. Mm-hmm. He didn't go to a, a playground that summer that I wasn't there. And he, I remember he would show me how to throw a football against the wall and how a football should bounce off a wall, what the angle should be you know, which way it should go and things like that. I was straight up, he's not going to forget me. He's going to see me throw the ball all summer long. And I started that year and, and uh, we won league that year. And so Chuck Ramsey, he was, he was it for me as far as, you know, ma- ma- making those kinds of moves. Um, when I got back from Vietnam, very aimless. You know, I mean, uh, I had played football for a semester at Santa Monica College. I was standing in line, I remember, to register for classes. And I had flunked a music class. And I'm thinking, how do you flunk a music class? I listened, you know? <laughs> so I was a little upset. So I said, screw this. I joined the Marine Corps. I'm not going to stand in line anymore. So as you know, I stood in line for two years straight. So, but when I got back, you know, I got back to what I left. And I left mm-hmm. stuff to get away from. Surprisingly enough, it was still there. So I needed to figure something out. And, you know, I, I mean, it was so aimless that I would just look at, I'd be walking down, I'd see a, a company, I'd go, okay, I'll go work there. You know, not even have any idea what they did. I just, I just didn't know. And then I figured, well, let me, um, let me see if I can get back on the football team. Um, so I went to talk to the head coach, said, you're too late. Uh, I'm leaving the campus. A friend of mine said he would um, give me a job in his plumbing company. 
And I'm thinking, okay. Uh, but then on the way out, the offensive coordinator stopped me, Pat Young, God bless him, and he got me back in. The good news is I'm not working on your plumbing because that would have been a shit storm <laughs> that you would have never recovered from. I got on the team, nothing better. We got a mission. We're concerned about the guy next to us. We want to make the guy next to us succeed. We want to kick somebody's ass in the process. So that was that was the best transition I, I, I could have asked for. Okay, so then I got a, a job as a clerk with Ryzen, the very lowest. And, you know, my, my clerking wasn't much better. Um, I flunked typing, you know, so you see my education, you get my, you can pronounce my uh, grade point. <laughs> Duh. Um, so I, so I wasn't a very good typist. I was looking for spray bottles of whiteout. I mean, it was just so hard for me, but stayed it, hung in there, uh, and there became, there was an opening in uh, media relations. So I figured, okay, um, I, by that time I had a degree in Asian studies and history, but I, I, I never said, I'm going to be a journalist. That's my goal. It wasn't. Uh, but to make that move was. So I went to UCLA, took extension courses. I found a mentor or two, and I got that position. And um, what I did is I became a utility player. I did anything. R they write a corporate speech. I do it. Never read a corporate speech in my life. I said, I'll do it. And I, it was important to me. I felt not to ask stupid questions like, what's a news release? They, they'd say, do a news release. i find out what it was and do it. Uh, and the one that kind of really helped was GTE got a um, master's card. And I didn't know anything about credit other than I was in credit hell. I didn't know what APR meant. And Alan Mendelson, who was the business reporter for Channel 9, wanted to do an interview in Santa Monica. One guy was too scared. The other guy was too busy. I said, I'll do it. I, I studied, did everything I could. I get out there. Um, it's like Santa Monica and 4th, you know, sunny afternoon. He's coaching me the whole way. I mean, I'm looking right at the camera, um, you know, so he tells no, look at me and he tells me everything along the way. And after I got done, I thought, I'm, I'm done. This, that can't be good. It was just awful. But the miracle of editing, I, I made it through. So uh, I was working media relations. So again, there was a strategy. There was a design that I came up with. And then I, I got riffed. One of those really soft corporate words, right? Uh, euphemisms, rift, reduction in force. Um, it sounds like, like something you, you want riff on your ice cream. Yeah. Um, uh, and I thought, I always thought, well, they, you know, they should have called it rip, you know, run over in place. My director was walking behind me. He kept, he go, don't worry about anything. And he never told me what not to worry about, which was a form of torture. Right? So he called me in his office. He had a thick folder and I thought I've been riffed, but he put me out here in Long Beach in these offices and, uh, said I was on a temporary indefinite assignment, which. You know, I figured mm, this is going to last a week, but I started assessing and figure, trying to figure it out. What do I need here? You know, this is a survival situation. I came into Randy Gordon's office, the office we're in now, and I looked around and I saw pictures of his kid in a football uniform. And I thought, I got this. I started going to his son's football games. Uh, we became great friends, still are great friends. I'm friends with his son. And then, you know, people took, he took me under his wing. A woman who worked for Edison in public affairs took me under her wing. I found mentors. I found allies. I found ways to get involved with uh, the education foundation and things mm -hmm. like that. So I was still, again, working. I'm a you know pseudo executive advisor, but I'm still working with kids. Kids are still a, a very important part of what I'm doing, and I'm benefiting from it. You know, because people, all those plaques, kind of thing. Those pretty much are for you know working with kids. So, 
there's not like a five-year plan broken up in shorter terms. There is, I'm in a situation, assess it, and then and then make my make my decision. It's in attack mode. Uh, Man, you know, and, where is your stress? Like, think back to when you were navigating this course. What was your blood pressure? Were you stressed? Yes, of course. But you know, I'm I'm working in a gym, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, while I'm working in the gym, I'm training for marathons and things like that, and I'm running all the time. And I've got that outside thing going that's really strong, so I can run it off. I can't sleep it off, but no. I can run it off. So you you really have learned that hey, you don't have to wait for perfect plan. Is this according to plan? But that you will always come out the other side. Is that true? Yeah, I I, I don't know that, but I will do everything I can to come out on the other side. And again, assess it as it confronts me. Mm -hmm. And because so many things are inherent. Like we talked about being in the, the middle, um, I could be comfortable in that situation, having that ability, if you want to call it that, and sort of work myself out by coming across uh, like, yeah, I got this. I don't, I don't think I ever presented any panic when I was out here first. Yeah, I was too busy thinking and working, mm -hmm. working, trying to work it out. So as you're also on the other side of that, as you're moving through, was there something that you had started out on? Was there ever a defining moment, like a line in the sand, something that that made you shift or redirect where you were or what path you were going down? Yes, there there were those three. There was Santa Monica College mm -hmm. when I had to shift to something, and then there was media relations, and um, then there was the the role as the public affairs person. So those were all shifts that I had to make. As was when I was playing football. Uh, and had to shift from sort of a someone who doesn't expect to play to someone who hey, just says, hey, I'm here, you watch, keep an eye on me, all right? Was that your first shift? I, I'm the guy. Uh, that was. It was? That was. Although, well, my first shift, and um, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, but my first shift was when I was with my family and I thought, you know, I got to be, I got to be different than these folks or it ain't going to work. So that was my, and that happened, and that sort of carried over too. I think that I do things a little differently uh, than some of the people that have done the jobs that I do. I don't think anyone's made out a career of doing James Brown um, other than me. And it's, That's different. It's a wonderful thing to watch you MC an event. And I still haven't seen your James Brown. Maybe a while. Well, I, I, I want to I wanna see it. I've heard great things about it. So this is interesting. I'm not sure how this next question is going to play out. Do you live or make decisions within constraints or limits? And we all do. But who creates those limits and constraints right. for you? Right. We all live within limits that are created for us wherever we're at, work, travel, you name it. You have limits, sometimes necessary, but we create our own limits as well. And I think that's where the work needs to be done because mm -hmm. uh, limiting us cuts back on our creativity. It, it impinges on our creativity. And if you're not creative, you're not going anywhere. If you can't create, in the, and if you can create in the moment, you're good. I really like people who are not lost for a thought. And I've met people like that. I um, really like John Irving, more so than when he, what I really liked when he was 40, he wanted to have, he, went, he challenged his son to a wrestling match. I really dug that, which is all garb and all that kind of stuff. He read at Cal State LA from the Hotel New Hampshire, and I went up there, and I went up there with my girlfriend, and I was going to ask him to run with me, because I knew from reading garb, he ran about seven miles a day. Mm -hmm. um, and I had all planned out. So he's walking out, I'm veering towards him, and um, I chicken out. My girlfriend comes up to him and she asks him a question. Uh, well, she asks him, uh, how do you like the movie? 
and he said to her, what movie? And he was serious. I mean, the movie that was, according to Garth, was out, and he, but he, he was serious about that question. You know, I couldn't be outdone. So I, I got up to him and I said, you know, I got to run seven miles in Santa Monica, moderate hills. He goes, moderate hills? So he busted me right there. He knew I was going to try to kick his ass on the hills that I ran. That was that, that instantaneous thought, that instantaneous creativity. Can I tell you one more yes. about that? Uh, I was into Spike Lee, and there's a Samuel French bookshop in Hollywood, and they got uh, scripts and plays and stuff like that, and he was signing autographs there. And he was in the screenwriting section, and I was playing around with screenplays too. So I went up to him, and his people were there, and I knew that. Uh, so I just stood right behind him, and I said, man, you don't need this stuff. And he goes, no, no, you're wrong. His thought was like that. Right there, he came right right back at me, and I just saw it. It threw me off my feet a little bit because it was so quick, quick-witted. So there was no limits for them in that moment. Now, someone who has limits, you're going you're, you're gonna to lose it. Mm. Um, so that's why I think that the fewer limits you set on yourself, the better off you're going to be because, again, you impinge on creativity if you limit yourself. And in both ways. You just walked up to Spike Lee and talked to him. Yeah, yeah, and if someone walked up to me from behind, you know, I mean, it, it, I'd have to recover a little bit before I'm coming, coming right back. You know, John Irving not only had a thought like that, but he busted me on my run. But did it, you end up running? Well, I ran, and I, I think he might have done it if he didn't have a run at UCLA. But yeah. Interesting. Still. Well, are there other times that you wish you would have been bolder? Maybe there was a risk that you didn't take earlier on that you wish you had. Absolutely. Uh, I was uh, a step away from the Peace Corps when I was in San Francisco. It was going to work on the home front, uh, and I didn't do it. I very much regret that. It would have been like being in a village to me. Have you tried to recreate that? It's it's a thought that I have. That's a, It would be a two-year thing. It's there for me. It's there. How do you navigate fear and uncertainty? Uh, sleepless nights, for starters. You know, I've even learned from that. I mean, with my the, during the sleepless nights when you think, man, I can't do that. I'm, I don't have what it takes. You need to tell them, you know, you're not the guy for that. But as soon as you get up, you take a couple of steps, you go, oh, okay, it comes to you, right? So I think a, a lot of the things that we fear, once we get into them, best way to get rid of fear, to start work, to start working on it. Now there's some fear, you just gotta slog through. You gotta just gotta push through. We've all been there, you know? The only thing is just to put one step in front of the other until they get to the top. And I think pushing through fear is the best way to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. the, the fears that you kind of figure out, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that report, whatever it might be, you know, and then you figure out, oh yeah, I can, I've done that before. That, that's a, a minor learning process, but when you overcome something, then you've, then you've learned and you've moved forward. That's real movement. So that's, that's what you mean by movement, just not just moving upward or, or lateral, it's, it's about staying in constant movement and experiences and learning and growth. Yes, even if you're within an organization, Mm -hmm. Right, that same thing would hold true. There's movement. It doesn't. It can be movement outside the organization, but it's still some a forward process. You're getting wow. something. So your personal fulfillment ever a driving force, or is it always external to what impact you're doing, you're making for others? No, it's it's internal. It's 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 a fulfillment. I, f I think if you're if you're working with nonprofits, you'll always find you're going to get more than you give, no matter what. Be it a culture, be it um, the ways of a, a group, things like that. Um, so it so it is fulfillment. And as you know, the current generation is big on fulfillment in what they do. I like that about the generation. And people will come to me and they will say, you know, I'm thinking of 
going into the nonprofit world. That's great. That's great. But what I, what I'll say to them, you know, sometimes they'll have a really good job. You know, they'll be in their early thirties, something like that, twenties. And I will suggest, I won't, I won't say anything, but I'll suggest an option might be to continue the job you're doing, continue to grow in that job, and join a board, or become involved in another way, rather than just going over right away. When you join a nonprofit, there's a world of difference if you work for Boeing and if you're retired, right? When you've got $130 billion behind you, you know, stay what you're doing, keep what you're doing. You're going to do a really good job, you're going to be very valuable. But I do admire. Um, the idea of fulfillment and giving back to the community. And you help a lot of people with that by voting them onto boards, sometimes without their knowledge, because mm. that's how I got mm. put on a couple of boards. Mm -hmm. It's all about movement. So what are the three people that you've met that have had the biggest impact on you? The, the first two we've talked about, again, chronologically, and all three involved with uh, believing in me, which answers the question, how much belief do you have in yourself? Um, but one was Chuck Ramsey, who thought well enough of me that thought I could play. Uh, the other was the Vietnamese village, who embraced me, brought me into the village, and made me a part of the village to the extent that I was going to be part of someone's family in a, in a godfather role. The third is Sean Harvell, who you know. With Sean, I was emceeing one of our lunches, U.S. Vets Long Beach Advisory Council lunch. And Jim McDonald, the police chief at the time, came up to me and said, Can you get this guy a seat? He's a badass and he's hurting. I'm in the midst of the lunch thing, so I'm not registering things or anything. I just go, yeah, I got it for sure. So he got seated, we got through the lunch. I, uh, I went up to Sean afterwards, and I realized instantaneously I just not have been around anyone like this, remotely like this. You know, and I've been around professional athletes and all this other kind of stuff. He was of a different category. So we were walking across the street from the Hilton over to here, and um, as, as I put it, God spoke to me. God said, and when God speaks to you, it's whole, it's complete. Whether it's a poem, whether it's a title, whatever it might be, it's there. Whoever you're on high is, right? Mm -hmm. So he said, Dad, this is your guy. And I thought, well, I mean, we were a very, very odd couple. I'm twice his age. He the, was the most decorated soldier in Afghanistan when he was there. One of the first to receive two silver stars in one ceremony, three bronze stars, Purple Heart, uh, credited with killing 260 Taliban in an airstrike. He's a combat controller. Uh, they travel with special forces. They travel with Green Beret. The difference is they're air traffic controllers. So they're stacking aircraft in the midst of whatever's going on. And that's what he did. I'm thinking, well, no, I don't know how this might, how this is going to play itself out. But trust in God. And I said, you know, if I'm going to be friends with someone, i got to be able to give them shit. And they i got to be able to give me shit. God didn't balk. But he did say, okay, if you can't, I'll see you in five seconds. And I'll expedite your processing. Because that's how it would be with Sean. We got we started hanging out. We went to San Francisco a couple of times, and I had never met anyone smarter or, you know, capable of whatever. You know, those guys are just value added whatever they do. And as you know, he drowned in 2016. He was out on the beach here in Long Beach to went out to meditate, and then had a seizure. And when I went to his service, everybody there was as in awe of him as I was. A lot of his guys were there. His commander was there and other people, and they had that same sense of him. And I always had a sense that something was going to happen late-ish for me. Uh, and I, I, fortunately, I told him that. His influence was that he accepted me for who I was and, and being who he was. And you know, a warrior 
I want to mm -hmm. talk about warriors a little bit. A warrior for someone like us is the deal. So yeah. all the people that I've talked about um, continue to be um, an influence on me. Just one moment on that. I mean, I don't know how you ever transition from a story about Sean. It's very hard to do. Well, he'll be back. <laughs> when you said that everyone there at the funeral was in awe of him, do you think he knew? The thing with Sean, he was a badass among badasses. Mm -hmm. He was an outlaw among outlaws. Um, and he had he had the quirks that everyone has. Uh, I think so. I, I, I don't think he could not be. But it, see, it didn't mean anything to him. We went to a volleyball match and we went to, uh, I knew the volleyball coach and I still do, Brian Gimbalaro. Sean had his daughter. And I asked Brian if we could come into the locker room after the game and see the girls, because I knew the girls would just be all over uh, his daughter. And mm -hmm. and that did happen. Uh, Brian, I started to introduce him. And you know me, when I he stopped me. He stopped me cold. And of course I stopped. And then Brian asked him, can you talk about teamwork? And Sean's response was essentially, enjoy it now, because you're not going to have it. And that was his issue, right? When he got here, he couldn't quite get settled here. And he also told me, I didn't want anybody to thank me for our service. And if you saw him, you wouldn't have known that he was the guy he was in the military, tatted up the way he was and stuff like that, riding skateboards and all that kind of stuff. He didn't, he didn't come across like that. That was compartmentalized a lot with him. But he, he would have to know. Do you know? Me? That there are a lot of people that are in awe of you. No. You don't know that. No. If you did know that, if you don't mind, I, I think that there's a similarity between you and Sean, that even if if you knew that the way he knew that, you still wouldn't leverage that. You wouldn't abuse that knowledge, which is admirable. Yeah, it was always problematic um, for at a party or something like that when someone would uh, ask Sean what services he would he say the Air Force, and they'd say, well, how was it almost being in the military? It was never... It was never good after that. Wow. <laughs> there was some pulling off that had to happen after that. Well, thanks for sharing. With so having talked about Sean, having talked about your experiences through the military, I'm just wondering, when you were talking about movement, you started as a clerk at Verizon, right. and then you found yourself in media relations and all of that. Was there ever a moment that clicked? You had always been liaison, if you will, the peacekeeper prior to the military, and then you found yourself in public relations in the military, and now you're finding yourself somewhere in the middle after. Was there ever an aha moment of... I got this. I got I, yeah. I got. I'm the pro at this. I got it, yeah. Yeah. Um, when was that moment? I mean, uh, did you make the connection after that interview, that that first televised interview? No, I think it came back. I came out because I was scared to death. Um, but when I was talking to um, customers that were really, really uptight, really angry mm -hmm. and stuff like that, right? And I figured out, well, the first thing you do is you, you know, call somebody by their first name. And you set up a, a relationship right away. You wear blue shirts because they're calming. You empathize. You know, you haven't had service. I feel terrible and let him vent just be a sounding board and then right away in a manner that's confident comfortable I'm on this I'm gonna put I'm gonna call somebody we're gonna get on this right away you got my you know you got what you need from me you got my cell phone number and some are harder than others but nobody ever lost it on me so yeah I did have a sense that okay I got this so when someone called and they were worked up I was okay with it you were naturally doing conflict resolution your entire life yes um, so more interesting enough, I mean, the, the conflict resolution, the 
The being in the middle, did that help you? It was a little less than in the military than it was other places. Other than, well, it was a big additive in the village, you know, because they knew who to call on, kind of a thing, Um, regardless of the situation. Someone was killed, didn't tell the Viet Cong where we were, killed somebody in the family. I, you know, they had me come out. I talked to the family for a while, sat with the family for a while. They knew they could, you know, that I would never say no, regardless of uh, of the situation. I know that you've only touched the iceberg of experience over there, but transitioning out of that back to being a civilian, uh, what was the biggest obstacle you faced? Uh, it was aimlessness, and it was when I got out, came back, you know, before I got into Santa Monica College, I was I was a little bit lost, just sort of dr- adrift, and we worried about it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't come on anything to hold on to, so I had to hark back to a place where I was comfortable, which is a field, and try to get back there, and that started me in education and things like that. So that was that that was critical to me. Would you would one of your advice be for those that are transitioning out to first and foremost identify what your anchor is mm-hmm. if you need it? Mm-hmm. Figure out what's inherent with you, mm-hmm. what you enjoy, focus and you know, open up your limits that we talked about. And then if I can reference we've already established my grades. Uh, but in college I took a class and we I did a report on uh, the Dubliners by James Joyce and Sid Hearth. Um, and the teacher said, you know, you're the smartest football player I've ever had. Now, that's a backhanded compliment, possibly. <laughs> it was. A, I took it as a compliment. But Sid Hearth had three things he could do on his journey. He could think, wait, and fast. Now, I take those as generalities. Thinking is just not coming unglued. Being able to control things and not turning instant, not turning into um, instant whatever. You know, you can think. You can wait. Wait is really important. Patience is so important. Uh, when you get out, you've got to be patient with yourself. You've got to give yourself space and time. And then fast. Fasting is about being able to do without. So you can, you're able to do, with, do without with something and wait, and you're able to think it through. I would recommend Sid Hartman. Those of us that, that have transitioned out, and I've been out for September will be 20 years that I have been out of the military. Hoorah. Super five. And I, and I had my own journey just transitioning out. I think a lot of us, and I know this is becoming very military focused, but this could be if, if someone's shifting from one area to another, they're transitioning in some way. But do you think that it falls on all of us that are transitioning from the military back into the corporate world? predominantly in the corporate world, because if we start talking about transitioning back into your personal life and merging back mm, into that, mm, it's mm. going to be a while. Yeah. As we move into the corporate, is it is it our responsibility to 100% adjust into that corporate culture, or is there a possibility that there's adjustment required from both sides? It's both all the way. Uh, it's important to understand that it's their culture, and the culture's been around for a long time, and by and large, it works. Uh, it's the uh, corporation's role. It's very important to me, if I was talking to someone who is an employer, don't thank anyone for their service, for me. And it, you know, some people, they, they need to do something, they need to express, I get that. Thanking someone for their service, um, I asked the drill sergeant you know, what that meant to me and him, and he said, Gesundheit, it's hollow. You know, when you thank someone, you mentioned combat, when you thank someone who's been in combat, they know, you know who needs to be thanked. So. Uh, I think that's a, a, a good step. And if you're going to, if you meet someone from the service, for me, you give them a, a hearty handshake, you make eye contact. You may not get eye contact. Eye contact may take a while, but you keep working on it. They'll come around. It's more true with uh, probably someone in combat um, because you're not going to, 
and I this isn't a problem in corporations that I've experienced with. They don't understand. They can't understand the military, and vice versa to a, to a degree. Right. But that's going to be the veteran's responsibility to give himself the time, mentor, whatever, whatever will get you over. If you're not on the line of scrimmage, you can't understand the line of scrimmage. So don't talk, you know, don't try to understand it. And don't think you're going to find it in a movie. You let a veteran talk to you. And I, I had to do that with Sean. I didn't ask Sean, I didn't ask Sean no questions. Because I'm not, you know, I'm just not in that realm. Uh, but I let him come to me uh, and talk to me. And we'd talk. And I wouldn't dig any deeper than what he gave me for the most part. Since, since it falls on both sides, what would you tell someone in leadership, in a corporation, if you could give them the secret of efficiency on how to lead former military under their charge, what would that advice look like? Here's how leadership looks to me. At, at Sean's service, his commander quoted a philosopher, Heraclitus, and most people have heard it. I'm sure you've heard the, the quote. Um, I hadn't. And it goes, and please hear man as women. I mean, it was 500 BC, so okay. men were even further back then <laughs> than they are now. It goes, um, out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we're lucky to have them because they make the battle. Ah, but the one, the one is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. Not lead them back, he'll bring them back. I was worse in math than I was in music or typing, so you can imagine. But I have made a math problem out of this, and I think it works for leadership. I think that percentage, and I, I, he made it easy for us, 1%, is going to be fairly true wherever you're at. You know, and I think there's some plasticity in it. You can be a don't even belong there. You can move around, I think. I, I think the ones are the ones, though, kind of a thing. That's Leadership comes to the top, goes to the top. And if they'll give those veterans that time, to assess the situation, get comfortable with it, I have no doubts, no doubts, they'll rise to a leadership position. But again, it's just a matter of patience, in my mind, uh, and not trying to force it, and not trying to over-understand, and not try to be over-empathetic. You know, I know, what, I know what you went through. No, you don't. You know, and you, you can't say that to anybody. No, you don't. But uh, that, so that would be the deal. The other thing, leadership breaches are big to me. Uh, breach is basically uh, opening, obviously. Right. Uh, Shakespeare has breaches. Three Musketeers, breach after breach. The importance with breaches is, is you don't get them back, right? Mm -hmm. It's an opening, and you have an opportunity to step in to that opening to do what you need to do. Leaders will always, always step in that breach, and you'll always see it, right? No matter no matter where you're at, that that's what they'll do. I think for the most part, you'll see that in someone who's in the military. They're going in. What are some universal truths regarding leadership from military and civilian sectors? Is there any universal truth between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, a, a leader in the corporate world, uh, he's gonna, the leader is gonna be, ah, uh, the right. one, you know, he'll, he'll bring the others back, uh, as will Drew Brees, or someone that we see in that role. They'll be that one person, that one man or woman that's going to do it. Different circumstances, it'll be different people. Um, so I think that there's a consistent in leadership. Uh, leadership that uh, And they're going to walk into the breach, they're going to walk out, and you're going to see them again. That's the deal. If someone come, comes back, it's just a good day. They lucked, <laughs> they lucked out. You know, as we come to the close, the last question that I wanted to ask you was, you're supposed to be retired, correct? Yes. Are you? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm retired from Verizon for 36 years. You're retired from Verizon, but are you actually retired? 
Well, I see, my problem is uh, I don't do retire well. I don't golf. Uh, I don't really travel. Um, I work, and that's always the way it's been for me. I mean, I've never, it's what I do. People tell me, don't, stop, do something, but it's not in the cards yet. How many boards do you serve on right now? Uh, I'm on uh, two U.S. Mets boards. I'm on the Goodwill board, and I'm on the United Cambodian Community Board. And I've been asked to be on a, a, a couple of the boards that I may consider. I'm, I've been involved, which I kind of like, in the early childhood education community. Mm -hmm. uh, being a Marine, it's just so much fun. And, you know, as, as you would imagine, you know, my role in the classroom has been to, uh, I do a rhythm and blues warm-up, and then we do a conga line. So I like being in, the, in, in that environment. So, yeah. Is that why you still do it? Why and you still I get do more there. Purpose. And being engaged. I, don't, I never want you to call me in the morning and for me to talk to you a half an hour that I cannot find my LA Times. I never want that to happen. <laughs> I don't think it will. I don't know. I don't think it will. <laughs> um, that, that was the interview. Thank you. You did so a great job. You did a great you job. You did a great job. I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed it. When are we going hiking? You call. I'm going to call you it call. the weekend after next. Okay. And that will allow me to hydrate properly and um, act like it's nothing. But I will not carry a six pound rucksack. Oh yeah, we'll leave that to are, the. Are we? We'll leave that to the Green Beret. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> well, um, that's going to be a close for us. Wow! You, you thank got, you. you. You got this. Oh, you almost brought me to tears a couple times every time you talked to Sean. Every time you talked to Sean. <laughs>